This is Barry Zalma, speaking for Zalma on insurance on YouTube. I am a lawyer and a certified fraud examiner, although I no longer practice law. You can reach me at zalma at zalma.com or at 310-390-4455. Today we're going to talk about what is insurance. First, you must understand that insurance is basically a contract, but it is a contract where one person, usually an insurer, undertakes to indemnify another against loss, damage, or liability. The other is usually referred to as an insured. The loss, damage, or liability must arise from a contingent or unknown event. This is how it is stated in California Insurance Code Section 22 and has basically been the definition of insurance since it first became a modern form of indemnifying business people back in the early 1700s. The insurer is a person or company or entity or group of people that promises to indemnify the insured if the insured is damaged by specified perils like fire, lightning, windstorm, or hail, or all risks of physical loss not excluded, like flood or earthquake war that might be excluded, or against the insured's liability to a third person as a result of the insured's negligence, where accidentally the insured causes injury to property or person. The insurer who promises to do this indemnity will only do so if the insured keeps his or her promises because an insurance contract is nothing more than promises made by an insurer to an insured and promises made by the insured to the insurer. And what promises does the insured make? The insured promises to pay the premium that is assessed by the insurer after contemplating the risks that the insured presents to them. The insured must also cooperate with the investigation of the insurer and fulfill the conditions of the contract of insurance. Under most property policies, for instance, the insured is required to present a sworn statement in proof of loss to the insurer, usually within 60 to 90 days after the loss or 60 to 90 days after the insurer requests a sworn proof of loss. Not all insurers require a proof of loss, and if the claim is small, they will usually waive the requirement. It is, however, the obligation of the insured to prove his or her loss, and this means showing to the insurer evidence that a loss has occurred that the loss occurred while the policy was in full force and effect, and that the loss was one 
the insurer agreed to indemnify the insured against. So the investigator working for the insurer, either as an adjuster or a private investigator, must advise the insured of the obligation to prove the loss, advise the insured of time limits set forth in the policy as conditions of coverage, and if a proof of loss is required, provide the insured with a blank form of proof of loss. This is because insurers learned from experience because the original policies only required a proof of loss and did had never even heard of an insurance adjuster. But when they found that the claims department is the foundation upon which an insurance company is built, if the claims department is not professional, does not provide the service promised by the insurer, the promise made by the policy is broken, and the insurer will lose customers and ultimately fail. Claims that are owed, therefore, must be paid promptly and in, with good grace. To do otherwise would be to ignore the purpose for which insurance exists, which is to provide service, protection, and security to the insureds and give them sufficient indemnity to put them back in the same condition they were in before any loss. The adjuster must also understand that the methods of construction of buildings of all types, labor and material costs in his or her geographical area, in order to fulfill his or her promises and duties to the insurer and the insured. Now, every insurance contract has a covenant of good faith and fair dealing. The covenant is never written. It is implied by tradition and court decisions into every insurance contract. It was first stated in 1766 in a case called Carter versus Beam that was filed in the House of Lords in Britain. And it was written by Lord Mansfield who was sitting in the House of Lords. And Lord Mansfield said, even there back then, that good faith forbids either party to an insurance contract by concealing what he privately knows to draw the other into a bargain from his ignorance of that fact and is believing the contrary. It is imposed on both sides of the contract. And Mr. Carter, the insured, owned a fort in the East Indies. The fort was subject to piracy. Mr. Beam agreed to insure the fort and trading post that Mr. Carter owned against the risks of loss. He was claimed after the fort was taken over by pirates and totally destroyed that he did not know of the risks and that Mr. Carter had hidden them from him. Lord Mansfield, reviewing the evidence at trial, learned that, in fact, Mr. Beam knew more about the risks of loss in the East Indies than Mr. Carter himself, that Mr. Beam was not deceived, and therefore refused to rescind the policy because Mr. Beam would be taking advantage of Mr. 
Carter because of his better knowledge. Most of the states of the United States now recognize a tort of bad faith. In the time of Mr. Carter and Mr. Bean, the only damages available were contract damages. And this persisted for more than 200 years until sometime in the 1950s, courts believing that insurance companies were treating their insureds badly decided the contract damages were not sufficient and that the covenant of good faith and fair dealing that was implied in every contract of insurance would require a need to add damages through tort, even though this is a contract and under contract law, the only damages you're entitled to are those contemplated by the contract. The cases created this tort out of whole cloth. And one of the examples of how the tort came to be due to improper actions of an insurer was the case of Grunberg versus Aetna Insurance Company, a California case in 1980. And what had happened was the insurance adjuster knew Mr. Grunberg because he had adjusted a fire claim for Mr. Grunberg before that he believed was arson, but he couldn't prove. So he had to pay Mr. Grunberg, and he was very upset about that. And then Mr. Grunberg submitted a new claim, and it came to the same adjuster. And this time, the adjuster was very offended that Grunberg would have another fire claim at his bar. And he, the adjuster, met with the fire arson investigator for the county of Los Angeles and convinced the arson investigator, based on his suspicions, that Mr. Grunberg had set the fire, although the adjuster had no evidence to prove that Grunberg had set the fire. Grunberg was arrested based on nothing except the hints given to the arson investigator by the adjuster. Then the insurance company demanded Mr. Grunberg's examination under oath, which is a condition preceding to recovery under any policy issued of covering fire in California or most any state. And Mr. Grunberg said, I, I, I can't come to an examination under oath because I might incriminate myself. Could you please delay the examination under oath? Well, the insurance company applying the law as it existed at the time said, no, you come or you lose. And Grunberg refused to come, and the insurance company denied his claim. Shortly thereafter, a district attorney observed that there really was no evidence against Mr. Grunberg and dismissed his case. Grunberg, through his lawyers, wrote to the lawyers for Aetna and said, okay, the case is gone. I can't incriminate myself anymore. I'm willing to submit to an examination under oath. And Aetna refused. Kept the claim denied, was eventually sued by Grunberg, who uh, 
established by taking his case all the way to the California Supreme Court that the conduct of the insurer breached the covenant of good faith and fair dealing and that Mr. Grunberg was not only entitled to his contract damages for the loss of his bar by fire, but was also entitled to recover punitive and exemplary damages and other tort damages.